Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. We are very happy to welcome Mike Shaw, who is the author of The Beginner's Guide to Astrophotography, published by Rocky Nook. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now, I live in one of the rare areas of the world without a lot of light. I live just south of Stratford-upon-Avon. My village has no streetlights. The village next door doesn't. The nearest streetlights are three miles away in Stratford. And sometimes in summer, I look up in the sky and I think that is amazing. I grew up in New York City, so you can imagine the difference. And I think I'd love to take photos of this someday. So where do we start? Well, you really start with your cell phone. I mean, today it's amazing what you can do just with a handheld smart device. I mean, even two or three years ago, that would have really been out of the question. But the best camera is the one that you have with you. And that's usually for most people a cell phone. So uh, to me, one of the greatest things about that capability of the cell phones is their ability to bridge the gap between people and the night sky. And historically, you'd have to have these fancy cameras and expensive tripods and lenses and all that stuff. Not so much anymore. And that's one of the themes of the new book is to, you know, allow people who have a curious, who are curious about the night sky, who has, have some curiosity with the night sky, to start to explore the cosmos with the ca- camera that they have. Jeff and I both have the iPhone 14 Pro, and this has 48 megapixels, which is a huge jump. And you do too. You just made a hand signal. But what I would be worried about with night sky photos is that the onboard processing would try to take over and change things too much. And I know you can shoot raw um, in certain apps with no adjustments and all, but if people just point their iPhone up at the sky, won't the iPhone itself change the lighting trying to brighten it? Definitely so. And of course, there are some limitations to smartphones. And that's when we get into the realm of most of the book, which has to do with DSLR and mirrorless cameras. Uh, The sensor on a smartphone is relatively small. The lenses tend to be wide-angle lenses, so even the moon, which is a relatively big object, appears small in most people's images. There's that meme that you've probably seen where it compares the vision of the moon that I have in my uh, in my perception to the tiny little moon that shows up in my image, and that is in, it's just part of the part of the game with a smartphone. But you're right, the the onboard processing of the phone does take over, and it does so in a way to make the image as palatable as possible for most people. But for photographers, of course, that's where we want to really put that to one side and then really bring out the, you know, the cameras with the, you know, the fast lenses and the, you know, low light capable sensors to really go into the cosmos and pick out the nebulae and the star clusters and the Milky Way and all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I want to bring up about that is that, um, I, I mean, I remember when people were first starting to shoot night sky photos with the uh, iPhone or you know the Android phones, and how stunning that was. Because, it, I mean, night sky photography is a challenge for any number of reasons. And suddenly, here were people like literally holding their phones, not even on a tripod, and getting you know decent star fields. And I, I think a lot of that is attributed to the fact that. You know, your phone is taking a bunch of different pictures at different ISOs and blending them together. So it's it's actually you know doing a lot of the 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 work that that maybe you'd be doing on 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 the other side. And I hope I'm not jumping ahead too much, but are any of the the, the mirrorless cameras, the DSLRs, are any of them doing that sort of thing yet, or is that something that that, that could be coming for you know like maybe a, like a specific astrophotography mode? 
Definitely so. And that's a great question because so much of what we see in, you know, popular film, science fiction film becomes reality. What we see with smartphones becomes, you know, integrated into uh, cameras. And I wouldn't be surprised if it does within a few years because everything is trending in that way. There's different modes that are becoming, there's a starlight, star bright mode available on the Nikon Z9, for example, that's just phenomenal at, you know, doing real-time imaging, noisy, but you can still see things. And, you know, there is this merging of technologies between smartphones and, and DSLRs, but for the time being, uh, the DSLRs really, and the mirrorless cameras, of course, which most people have today, really reign supreme in terms of their ability to capture, you know, good, high-quality images in the really low-light conditions. And the main reason for that, of course, is the uh, large apertures and the long shutter speeds that you use, you know, 10 or 20 seconds, which, of course, is why you'd use a tripod. And with a cell phone, especially when you're hand-holding a cell phone at night, the cell phone onboard technology, as you mentioned a second ago, Kirk, limits the exposure time to a relatively short time to minimize any, you know, hand-shakiness. And even though it stacks or basically averages a number of such images to increase the overall elapsed time and minimize the star motion and all that, it's still kind of limited in how much information can be captured in a single image. Whereas with a a DSLR or mirrorless camera, full, let's call this just, well, SLR cameras for nothing else. Yeah. Um, DSLMs. On a tracker in particular, you can go to four minutes and just in a single shot. And just you know, when you think about the amount of light, as you probably know, the human vision system, the uh, our vision system captures images roughly 20 times a second and ports those off to our brain so we can integrate those into what we see as, you know, vision which means that our, our human vision is operating at a 20th of a second shutter speed, effectively. When we look at the night sky, we have a 20th of a second shutter speed. We have an amazing retina, the ISO, but our aperture is on the order of, let's say, max, <laughs> and very dark locations are, uh, you know, eight, or not, 8 to 10 millimeters. So it's not a particularly large aperture. Whereas with a fast, you know, prime lens, you can have, you know, a much larger aperture, let's say an inch or so. And, of course, with the, you know, effectively 20 second shutter speed, I don't even know how many times, you know, a thousand times more light you let into a single image than you do when you look at the night sky, which is why so many times people will look at these night sky images and will say, is that real? Is that, is that what we see? It's like, no, it's not what you see at all for those reasons I just described, <laughs> but it's there. It's interesting because I wanted to ask you, when we talk about photography, we talk about reproducing reality, what we see. But when we talk about astrophotography, we're actually reproducing things we can't see. Oh, you just hit the nail on the head. So <laughs> let me ask you a question. So you started off by saying we use photography to capture what we see. Well, we don't have a 200 millimeter eye. We don't, you know, see at an aperture of, you know, uh, f2.8, let's say, or a wide open aperture. So my point is that most photography, other than photography captured at a 20th of a second with a 50 millimeter lens, is not what we see. Well, it's what we see. Let's say it's got a telephoto lens. It's what we see, but zoomed in. Ah, but it's not what we see. Right. But astrophotography is things that we can't even see with the naked eye because of the length of the exposure, right? Well, they're there. If we, they're, Some of them you can actually make out. Some of them you can't see, of course. And that's the same thing with a microscope yeah. and a telescope. You're right. They're beyond our capabilities. But I would beg to differ and say that much of photography, if you examine the repertoire of most photographers, are things that we are not, that are not a characteristic of normal human vision, and it's mm. no different with astrophotography. Yeah, it's an interesting point, because if you think about sports photography and catching something at a 1-500th shutter speed of catching just that moment 
when, I don't know, the tennis player hits a return, right? Or the football player catches a ball. You're only imagining that when you're watching it on TV. And that freeze frame gives us something that we actually can't see. That's exactly the point, Kirk. It's exactly right. And same thing with a portrait uh, photograph. If we have a, a depth of field that's produced by a 85 millimeter, you know, portrait lens at f, you know, 1.4 or 1.8, that depth of field is way beyond anything that we see, but it's very attractive to us. But nonetheless, it's not what we see. So I just, (laughs) this question comes up a lot, as you can imagine. And so I just have given it some thought. And uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, because I think to me, photographers in general um, perceive nature in a way that, or what could be within nature as a nature photographer, um, in ways that often go beyond what we see. And the reason we're so attracted to photography, it's a tool that allows us to capture that and to share that with others, to share our vision of what we see to others who might not yet be uh, familiar with that. And then, of course, once they see that, I mean, I just got from, back from two back-to-back workshops in Utah, and both of them, I mean, there were people who were like, you know, mind-blown, basically, on night one, because you can see things that are there and they've only dreamed about seeing. And it was the same way with me when I first went to Antelope Canyon you know, those slot canyons in northern Arizona. And I was just laughing the whole time because all of a sudden, on the back of my camera were all the images I dreamt of for all these years. I was like, those are now in my camera. And it's the same thing with Astro. I mean, people get out and start shooting the Milky Way and it's like, oh my gosh. Or the Aurora in particular. It's like, they're just, it's just a, it's, it really is a life-changing moment. And you, you never really go back from that. You just go forward. So if you're in a slot camera, you actually see the stars better, correct? Because it's cutting down the uh, what's around what you're shooting. Is that it? Well, I mixed metaphors there. Actually, there were two. They went to the slot canyons during the day. Yeah, and it was just an example of this is some beautiful orange, you know, slot right. canyons with these shafts of sunlight and the blue skies. And but you're right. I mean, if you can t- to build on that though, I mean, anytime you can get around, for example, in Death Valley National Park in, uh, in in California, Las Vegas, even though it's you know hundred or so, a couple hundred miles to the east, still produces a certain amount of glow, just like the lack of the ones from the villages near you, uh, Kirk. And the mountains that are that are aligned on a north-south direction between Las Vegas and Death Valley do a good job of blocking a lot of that light. You can still see some of it, but if those mountains weren't there vis-a-vis a slot canyon, then yes, it would be even worse. So we want to talk about gear. What is, you can use a smartphone, but to take really good pictures, you need a certain number of things. You need a camera, a lens, a tripod. Do you need anything else? Great question. And the two things you want to make sure your camera has is manual focus and manual exposure. The, I mean, today, most cameras have that that you're going to get. So this is kind of a redundant thing to say. But without manual focus and without manual exposure, uh, there's a good chance your auto-focusing and auto-exposure capabilities will not work in the dark. So yeah, the two things that you really want to make sure you have are manual focus and manual exposure. So you can control those yourself and not have to rely on the ability of the camera to focus in the dark, because sometimes there just aren't very bright things for it to focus on at all. And if you're in a dark location, the brightest things around are the stars. And with a wide angle lens, they're very, very small in the uh, field of view and are very, very difficult, challenging for your camera to pick up on. So, but you can pick them up as a photographer with a little bit of practice and some of the techniques that, you know, we talk about in the book, zooming in on the back screen and so forth. It's able, you're able to produce a tight focus every time reliably. Don't you just focus to infinity? Oh, great question. And you would think you'd, you would and you can, and it works to a point. Mm-hmm. The, the reason for that is let's examine a zoom lens. If you consider a standard, let's say 14 to 24 
wide-angle zoom lens or 24 to 70 or anything like that, the actual physical focus points on the focus ring are different for the different zoom positions. Just a physics thing. And as such, you can get a reasonably good approximation of focus for you know, a lot of landscape-type uh, applications. But stars are very challenging objects to image because they're so small and they're so tiny and bright. And our eyes do a good job of focusing on them, but when we have an image, we want to make sure the stars are in perfect focus. And really, in my experience, after all the years of doing this, is the best way and really the only way to reliably produce a good focus on a star at any zoom length is to focus directly on a star using the back screen display of your camera. And the way you do that is to simply optically enlarge using the magnifying glass button on the back of your camera, someplace, wherever it is, to optically zoom in on a, on a bright star and then focus on it and then optically zoom back out. And I just want to emphasize to the listeners to not zoom in using the zoom lens, you know, go from, let's say, 70 to 200, focus to 200 right. and then zoom back out. Right. Because then the focus will, by definition, be off. Right. But yeah, it's, it's, you, the infinity gets you most of the way. But the best way is to, to do that. You can go to infinity, but not quite to infinity. <laughs> Definitely not beyond. Oh, that's the funny thing. You actually do go beyond. It's like there's the infinity and beyond because of the beyond. And the other part of that is also because the manufacturers recognize that the focus point shifts slightly because of the different temperatures, you know, between a, a desert runway in Saudi Arabia versus, you know, shooting the aurora in Antarctica in the winter, middle of winter. I mean, the, the camera just shifts around a little bit. So there's that. That's good to know because, I mean, I've done a very limited amount of of night photography, and my general sense is like the best way to do it is you get there before it gets dark, you you find your composition, you focus on like you know like a mountain range or whatever your your real world real world uh, I guess earthbound object that you're <laughs> focusing on, you know, focus on that, and then when it gets dark, then you start shooting. But that also has its, its limitation because what if you're there and suddenly, you know, the, the Milky Way is shifted a little bit over to where you thought it was going to be. Um, but maybe if you do your, your preparation right, that doesn't happen. But being able to adapt in the middle of, of the night or, you know, look, I've got lots of pictures of this rock. I want to do another rock. But am I out of luck because now the, the light is gone? You know, I'm glad we're talking about this because focusing is really one of the most important aspects of astrophotography. If the focus is off, everything's off. And I'm glad that you folks recognize that because that's something that a lot of times people sort of skip or they sort of mentally like, well, I'll, I'll check that when I get back or something like that. And when you're in the field and you, you, know, you do your shot, it looks pretty good. You look at it on the back of your camera and then you get home and you blow it. I mean, you're looking at this little compressed JPEG that's, you know, a couple inches on the back screen of your camera. You blow it up on your screen. It's like, oh, man, what was I thinking? This is terrible. Uh, Jeff, you raised an interesting point, and that is that, once, first of all, two things. Once, once you've established focus, you don't have to refocus. So, for example, let's suppose I'm shooting the Milky Way to the south. But for some reason, I decide that there's a really bright, you know, star or planet off to the east. I can very successfully focus on the star to the east, and then without needing to refocus, I can simply turn my camera around to the south and focus and shoot the Milky Way without refocusing. And because I'm in manual focus, the focus isn't going to shut. In fact, once you focus on a bright star, one of the very bright stars is, is Arcturus. And it's not near anything that's often photographed, but it's a pretty good star to focus on. So a lot of times I'll focus on Arcturus, and then I'll put a piece of gaffer's tape 
carefully between my focus ring and the camera body. And then I can, you know, the rest of the night shoot anything I want and my camera's in focus, provided I don't change the zoom. And that's where the ability to focus directly on things during the course of the night is, is a worthwhile thing to do. A lot of astrophotography is a combination of stars and other, as Jeff said, earthbound objects. And we see two photos on the wall behind you where you see some mountains and some stars. So you focus on the mountains first and then you wait? Or does it matter if you get there later when it's already dark? Can you still focus to get the mountains sharp? Going back to the daytime thing, um, one, one, there's a lot of uh, cases where you might be interested in doing a time lapse, a day to night time lapse. And of course, during the day, there's no stars. And uh, a very effective technique in that scenario is you can actually literally focus on a distant mountaintop or a distant light on the horizon, or not a distant object on the horizon, or even distant cloud. And those are sufficiently far enough away that they will be in focus for that focal length and that, uh, that day. Now, um, the question then becomes, is the, uh, is the mountain in focus? And this goes into a classic discussion of what's the near focus distance for a given aperture and focal length lens. And for, I'm happy to say that for most of the landscape astrophotography cases, such as a Milky Way with a mountain or an aurora with a pond or a, something else over a mountain, the mountains are usually, the horizon object, the foreground objects are usually sufficiently far enough away, even when you're shooting wide open, you know, with an aperture, let's say F2.8 or F3.5 or F4, with a, even a 35 millimeter lens that the near focus distances, you know, maybe tens of feet away. And what that means is everything beyond that distance is in focus along with the stars. So that is usually not a consideration for landscape astrophotography subjects. But the new book, uh, the, the Beginner's Guide, is really about not just the landscape astrophotography type of astrophotography, but the deep sky astrophotography side of astrophotography, which is, includes the just single images of galaxies or nebulae or star clusters, you know, or things like that that are deep in the sky, even either within the Milky Way or outside of the Milky Way in intergalactic space. And in that case, of course, everything's in focus because everything's a zillion miles away from us. <laughs> but yes, and with the, with the mountains um, and so forth, once you focus on the stars, and for all intents and purposes, you're good to go for the night. Intergalactic space. I like that. So we have interstellar <laughs> space, which is within the Milky Way. And that's where all the stars are. Once you leave the Milky Way, there really aren't any stars until you get to the next galaxy, and then you're in that galaxy, and you're in, in its interstellar space. But between that galaxy and our galaxy is intergalactic space, and there's really nothing out there. This yeah, I just see the tops of your minds lift up a little bit. No, it's no, this, both this, your heads. Well, <laughs> no, this always brings back the idea when I was, I don't remember how old, and I started realizing how vast all that space is and how tiny we are, and the awe that you get when you're out there looking at the stars at night, in the, the first time I ever saw a really dark sky, I grew up in New York City. You got so much light, you can't. Um, I moved to France in 1984, and I spent a year in a small village in the south. And a couple of days after I went, I got to the village. I walked out of the village into the dark, and I was just stunned by how dark it was. I had never seen that darkness. And this feeling of not just the stars and the darkness, but the fact that you can almost see the the sphere rotating around you if you sit and wait. It's very slow, but you can see it. And the idea of taking pictures of that almost seems wrong, that we shouldn't be able to take pictures of something that awe-inspiring. Well, it's a, you know this is a great thing you're bringing up, Kirk, because it's a little bit like photographing the Grand Canyon. Yeah. I mean, it's just impossible in some ways. But this is the thing that I like about the subject, is that 
Um, you know, I used to help run star, star parties in Southern California at the um, Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. And we, you know, the first year was like 200 people, and it was 400, then it was 800 people. And, you know, without fail, one of the most common things we'd get are these families who would come out and, for the, and have that same experience. Like for the first yeah. time, they'd get out of L.A., they'd see, um, see that, you know, the sphere of stars and just be absolutely amazed by it because it does – and people are like that around the world. That's one of the other things about this. It really is a truly, truly global thing. But here's something that if you ever or anyone listening ever gets a chance to be out in the dark um, during a moonless night in particular, especially a moonless night, uh, during the summertime or the, the months of, you know, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, is to, is to do the following. And this is something we do on the workshops that <laughs> usually goes well. And, uh, you know, um, and the idea is to... Lay on the ground, on your back, looking up, looking straight up, and it, when you do that, your peripheral vision loses the horizon. If you're in a you know place that's far away from trees, mm. you know, parking lot or something like that, field, just you know, something where there's not a lot of trees just hanging over you. And when you do that, you're looking up basically into just space. So it's like you're looking only into space. There's no uh, Earth horizon in your field. I wear glasses, so that helps a lot. Yeah. And if you do this for, you know, just a few minutes, you get this incredible feeling of three-dimensionality, that the bright stars appear close to you, the dimmer stars, the smaller dimmer stars appear further away from you, you get that you can see the, the, the dust nebulae, you can, you can see, oh, those, those, the reason I don't see stars there is because there's stars behind it, but that's in front of it, and then there's stars in front of it, so I can, and you have this incredible three-dimensional, it's like you're really floating in space. I mean, and the reality is, is that that view of space is no different than the view of space from aboard the space station that the astronauts have. Mm. Because, I mean, sure, they're 250 miles closer to it, but that's like a a calculated once. It's like a trillionth of a trillionth of a percent closer to the nearest, even the nearest star. Yeah. So the point is, we are all earthly astronauts. And every night when when the atmosphere clears, we're looking at space from our Earth spaceship Earth. I mean, there's absolutely no different uh, that view from if we were to to go into space, and when you get that three-dimensionality feeling from this exercise of just laying on your back for 10 or 15 minutes, again, it's kind of a life-changing thing you never forget. So here's my question based on, on what you're saying, uh, getting people out of the cities. Um, yeah, because I, I live in Seattle, lots of light pollution. I, I mean, I can still see stars, but I've also you know, gone to like uh, the North Cascades where there's, you, know, you can see so many more stars and all that. So do I have to you know, make a trek to go somewhere where there's as little light as possible to make good astro photos. Is it going to stop me if I don't? Uh, it, can Jeff make good photos from his backyard? Yes. Let me explain why. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can people just make good photos even though there's going to be pollution and, and all of that? Absolutely. I mean, here's the thing is that, of course, the experience is different if you get out of the city. And you do see more stars, I mean, you know, exponentially more stars at dark, at dark sky locations. And, you know, we were talking a minute ago about how the ability to see stars is decrease, decreasing owing to light pollution and how that's spreading at an alarming rate. And if you want to learn more about that, I would suggest uh, exploring the International Dark Sky Association, darksky.org, for some great information and resources and things that you can do, anyone can do, around their home and their neighborhood and their, their wherever they live to help minimize the spread of light pollution. Do they involve using the, firearms? 
<laughs> no. to shoot out the lights. Uh, <laughs> but the reality is, is that, you know, one of the themes I think that's permeated this discussion is this connection we, that astrophotography gives you and just observing, you know, gives you to space. And even in, you know, downtown Manhattan, you can still see the moon set and the moon rise. And you can observe surface features on the moon. Uh, there's a, an image in, I remember seeing of a comet over the Manhattan skyline. You can see the bright planets over, you know, from, from downtown city centers. So wherever you live, you have the ability to see some of the brighter stars. During a recent project, I was shooting the constellation Orion from the brightest part of downtown Minneapolis, which is a large, you know, urban metropolitan center with lots of light pollution. And being able to see that rotating sphere that Kirk was talking about, you know, watching, appreciating the fact that this night sky moves precisely the same way the sun does because the earth's rotating, the night sky isn't actually moving at all. And the seasonality, you know, why do we see the Milky Way in the summer and Orion in the winter? It's because the earth is orbiting the sun or on the other side of the sun. So we look that way in the wintertime and the other way in the summertime. Milky Way's over there and Orion's over there. So that's why we see it. And stuff like that just gives you this connection and, and appreciation for you know, where the Earth is in the solar system and where the solar system is in the Milky Way and where the Milky Way is in intergalactic space and all this other stuff. And you can do that from the city just from watching the brighter stars, the planets, the moon, and, if you, and other things like that. All right. So is there like an ideal place on Earth to get the best night sky photography? Like if I said, all right, here's a ticket. You can go anywhere in the world you want to go. Where would you go? Oh man, that's a that's a valuable ticket to have. And again, I mean, for those listening, I mean, this this is like wishful <laughs> thinking, of course. I mean, for those listening, it yeah. really is you know your backyard. It's like the camera. Take your self, take your cell phone, head out to the backyard, and enjoy some some night photography any time of the year. Uh, the aurora borealis happens year round. Uh, there's always constellations. There's the summer Milky Way, the uh, the winter Orion. But the places that you'd like to seek out are usually moderately high altitude. You know, somewhere between. Seven to 10,000 feet, ideally, because above 10,000 feet, you start to lose oxygen that affects your night vision. But from photography, they're great. And that are in dry locations. I mean, the Atacama Desert in Chile is a, a phenomenal place for night photography. Central Australia, Namibia, southeastern Utah, um, you know, places like that are the places where it would be great to see, be able to image some of the darker, uh, most distant parts of the of the cosmos. The Southern Hemisphere has an unbelievable viewing of the Milky Way because of where, because of the Earth's tilt, how the Earth, how the Southern Hemisphere locations are oriented to appreciate some of those, um, some of those objects. But uh, if you get that ticket, Jeff, let, let's, let, let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> if I get that ticket, there'll be well, three. You know, actually, there's, uh, <laughs> All three of before us. we leave that point though, I mean, and this is why astrophotography is so great because on social media, social media is kind of that ticket. We can appreciate some of those sites through the lenses of other photographers who go there and bring back photographs to share. And all of the readers listening to this are part of that project. Um, and so it's really, it's really, there really is a community element to this, which is phenomenal because it allows us to, to appreciate that. And in fact, one of the earliest um, efforts to promote this idea is an, or, an organization promoted by my good friend, um, Bob Akdefreshi, who's a National Geographic photographer now and he Bobak started an, uh, an an organization called the world at night back in i think 2007 one of the first people to do this and it's a if you visit that website it's twanight.org it's a remarkable uh, compilation of 
night photography from literally every corner of the earth, organized by country, organized by subject matter, and so forth. And it's very, very inspiring and, and motivating. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about is my favorite time of year. I have a fairly large garden behind my house. In the UK, garden means backyard. And it's about the size of three tennis courts. There's a lot of room. One of my favorite things to do in August is to lie on a towel and watch the Perseids meteor storm. Now, what's the trick to getting photos of that? Just keep shooting and hoping that the meteors come by? In a nutshell, yes. I mean, meteors, actual, (laughs) when one shoots a meteor shower, sometimes satellites and airplanes are mistaken for meteors and images. And of course, the best way to tell this apart is that meteors only occur in individual images in a sequence. If you're shooting a sequence, which is the way to go, then if you have a a line in two or more uh, sequences, it's going to be something other than a meteor. Uh, Meteors typically occur within the space of about one to 10 milliseconds, which is about two to three times the blink of an eye. Mm. Uh, But they're very bright, and hence we can see them. Meteors, uh, meteors, so meteors happen every night of the year. You can go out and you can usually see one or two meteors are called sporadic meteors, and they occur any time that the Earth encounters a dust particle in space, and the dust particle they're going like 10,000 kilometers a mile, an hour, or an hour. And when the dust particles come through the Earth's atmosphere, they incinerate and leave behind this bright flash, which is what we see. And by the way, you can actually um, purchase, so that's a meteor. So a meteoroid is a imminent meteor. <laughs> a meteor is a meteor. And then if the, if the thing survives long, if it's big enough to survive and land on the Earth, it's a meteorite. Right. And you can actually purchase meteorites from rep, reputable astronomy uh, businesses. And there is something, I, I, I'd suggest doing it. You know, it's not terribly expensive. And there, to me, is something unbelievable about the fact that you can hold in your hand something that came to Earth from outer space. Yeah. I mean, it's like, this is not from Earth. And yet here it is. Anyway, the meteor shower happens when the Earth passes through a dust cloud that's left behind from a comet or an asteroid. So as comets right. and asteroids go around the sun, they spew out these like, you know, loads of stuff. And that stuff has nowhere to go. It just hangs there in space. And every year, the Earth goes through the same thing. And there's, you know, half a dozen or more meteor showers that last either days or hours. The, me- the Perseid meteor showers are relatively sh- relatively short when it lasts a few days. You know, I'd go out the day. But it's a good time of year because it's warm enough at night in the summer. Oh, totally. It's from a northern hemisphere point of view. It's fantastic because, like you say, everyone's... And that's the one that most people see. The Geminid meteor shower in December is even better. Mm. It's in December, so it's oftentimes cloudy in the yeah. northern hemisphere and cold. But but yeah, the Perseus. So the best way to to photograph any meteor shower is to first decide where the what's called the radiant is located in the sky. And the radiant is the point in the sky from which the meteors appear to emanate. So they're kind of like shooting out of the radiant, just like you know a, a Star Wars like you know warp speed type thing mm. or a Star Trek warp speed type thing. Anyway, um, so if you shoot into the radiant, that's fine. But the meteors are going to be relatively uh, short in length because they're coming straight at you. So the trick is to shoot about 30 to 60 degrees away from the radiant, because then you kind of get them going by you, if you see what I mean. And so they tend to be longer. And then, of course, you just want to run an all-night time lapse. Right. It's best after midnight, because that's when the side of the Earth is facing into the dust cloud. Uh, so between midnight and dawn is usually the best time to uh, to capture them. But again, all-night time lapse, you know, just a 20-second, 15-second interval you know, running all night long. You can turn it into a Star Trails image if that doesn't work out or a, a time-lapse video. 
and a fast wide lens is you know wide open high iso a short by the way a short i'd recommend a short shutter a short shutter speed of about 5 seconds or so to get the best contrast between the meteor and the background because in a 20 second exposure the background's pretty bright yeah. and tends to drown out the very dimmest meteors okay mike shaw your book is the beginner's guide to astrophotography it's at rocky nook do you have a discount code to share shaw 10 shaw 10 that gives you 10% off the book um, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. This has been fascinating. Absolutely. My pleasure. Okay. It's time for our snapshots. What have you got, Jeff? I have something vaguely related. Um, so the people who make the Halide app, Halide, I actually don't know how to say it, Halide, uh, they've come out with a new app that is uh, sort of a, a niche landscape photography tool. It's called Skylight. And what it does is using algorithmic magic and uh, weather data from all sorts of, of different places, uh, it just gives you a sense of whether the sunset is going to be good or fair or spectacular. So if you're out and you want to shoot a sunset, you can put in a location or use your own location, and it will just give you an idea of whether or not you know the sunset's going to be spectacular. It's going to have like orange and yellows, or if it's just going to be fair. Like So right now I'm looking at it for Seattle, and it's saying that the golden hour, the sunset, and the afterglow are all just fair. So it says likely poor visibility. Colors may include yellow, orange, red. Uh, it, it, it's very simple, but it is helpful in the sense that if you're thinking about going out, you can take a look at this and say, oh, it doesn't look like it's going to be very good tonight. Maybe I'll wait and save myself a trip. It's available at the App Store. Um, it costs, uh, it looks like it's a $9.99, $10 yearly subscription. Kirk, what do you have this week? I have been trying to evangelize people to watch Succession, which just finished the series finale on Sunday. Something interesting that I learned is that the entire series is shot on film, which is pretty rare these days. Yeah. And my thought was, why shoot on film when you can reproduce the look of a film digitally with color grading and all that? But they insisted in doing it on film. And I, I'm not sure exactly why. I want to research this. But there is an article that I want to link to. There was one, I don't want to say what happened in the scene. There was one scene that took place on a boat that was relatively long in the episode. And it turns out that this was a 27-minute long scene that was uh, one of the actors says it was like us doing a one-act play on a boat in several rooms with background actors, with lighting everywhere, with three cameras. It was unlike anything I'd ever done before, it was extremely exciting. The article goes on to say, due to the fact that the show shoots on film, the crew was only able to shoot for 10 minutes at a time before the cameras had to be physically reloaded with new film. So the director explains, the camera operators worked on this idea of basically hiding rolls of film around the set and hiding a third camera body during super fast reloads so that one camera would always be running so they wouldn't have to reload at the same time. Jeff, Jeff's jaw is hanging down there trying to imagine how you do this. That, that is quite the technical feat. That's amazing. It is. It is. The article says that a lot of this was used in the finished episode. They must have had a couple of retakes for this and that. But it's a really interesting approach to filming for anyone who's ever you know, seen the making of a movie. You don't do that unless you're Alfred Hitchcock and you're doing rope, right? Right. But also the fact that it's shot on film, I, I don't know why, but I think that's just really interesting. That that just increases the difficulty level by 10 times. That's 
That's that's pretty stunning. Yeah. So anyway, Succession just finished. If you haven't watched it, watch all four seasons. Binge them. One of the best TV series I've ever seen. Was there actual success? There was success. On Succession? success. Oh, okay, and succession. good. Okay, until next time, Jeff. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.